Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we tell the stories of two women. One, a scientist fascinated by dancing mice. The other, a seamstress with a deadly family legacy, who both made significant contributions to our understanding of cancer as a disease driven by genetic changes, paving the way for life-saving screening programmes for families. Over the past year or so, I've been writing a new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, exploring what we've learned so far about where cancer comes from, where it's going and how we might finally beat it. It's coming out in the UK on the 6th of August and in the US on the 29th of September and it's available now to pre-order from rebelcellbook.com and we will have some excerpts coming up in a future episode of the podcast. While I was researching the book, I came across the stories of two remarkable women who both made significant contributions to our fundamental understanding of cancer, but who have tended to be overlooked in many tellings of the history of cancer research. Here are their stories. Cancer has plagued humanity for our whole existence. But until recently, we knew very little about what caused the disease, how we could prevent it, and how we could treat it more effectively. Within my lifetime, the outlook has changed, and cancer survival has doubled here in the UK and significantly improved in many parts of the world. We now have a much better understanding of the disease, leading to more effective treatment, screening and prevention. Today, we know that cancer is the result of a complex interaction between genes and our environment, although we are still unravelling plenty of the details of how cancer develops. In the early 1900s, scientists began to investigate the causes of cancer. Researchers in the field were divided into two camps, those that believed that cancer was caused by inflammation and those who thought that an infectious disease or a parasite caused it. Other theories suggested that hormonal imbalance or misplaced embryonic cells might be responsible. Still, for the most part, cancer was considered a disease that was caused by the environment with no hereditary contribution. It was Maud Sly, a quiet, slight woman from Minnesota, who would change all of that. Born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1879, Maud didn't initially set out to answer the question, is cancer inherited? In fact, she almost didn't make it through her undergraduate science degree at all. At the time, few scholarships were available for women, and her family couldn't afford to pay for her to go to university. So, as a student, she combined a full academic load with working long hours to pay for her tuition and board. It eventually led her to the point of a nervous breakdown and she had to take a break from her studies to recover. When she eventually made it through her degree, she found a job as a psychology teacher, work that introduced her to the fields of genetics and psychiatry. The topics fascinated her and in 1908 she ditched the teaching gig and took up a position as a graduate assistant with Charles Whitman, Professor of Zoology at the University of Chicago. Drawing on her experience in psychiatric problems and her growing interest in genetics, she decided to investigate the inheritance of so-called nervous abnormalities. 
she chose Japanese waltzing mice for her study. Animals with an inherited neurological disorder that causes them to whirl and spin in circles like dancers. Planning to crossbreed them with regular white mice and observe the results. Her experiment was a bit like what Mendel did with his peas, but with dancing mice instead of coloured flowers. Maud purchased the mice with her own money, including buying several from Massachusetts mouse breeder Abby Lathrop, the mother of all mice, who we talked about in episode 7 of our first series, Supermodels of Science. Maud's project had no funding for an assistant or expenses, so she worked 18 hours a day caring for hundreds of mice. She also had to pay for their bedding straw and grain with her meagre stipend, often going without food herself. Outside the laboratory, Maud was a keen poet, often reflecting on her dedication to science in her poems. I work alone now, and my treasure is only in my work. As her research trundled on, well, the breeding cycle of mice can't be hurried after all, Maud became interested in the work of a pathologist called Leo Loeb, who was studying the incidence of cancer and wanted to know why the disease seemed more common in certain communities. Loeb studied thyroid cancer in mice and eye cancer in cattle, a species I assume he didn't have to keep in his laboratory or care for in his spare time. Loeb suspected that the cancers were inherited, but proving it would require a carefully controlled breeding programme. Luckily for him, the basic components of such a study were already sitting in Maud's laboratory. Intrigued by Loeb's ideas, Maud decided to switch the focus of her research from figuring out the inheritance of waltzing to studying the hereditary patterns of cancer instead. Just as she had crossed her dancing mice with their more stable counterparts, Maud would begin breeding cancerous with non-cancerous mice and watch what happened in their offspring. Of course, the research would require thousands of matings and years of study, but Maud was undaunted by the scale of the project and soon began in earnest. Eventually, one of her mice spontaneously developed breast cancer, and then another, and more after that. It wasn't long before she had her first litter of mice born to one of these affected mothers. But Maud knew that this was just the beginning. It would take more matings, more data, and most importantly, more money to get an answer. Maud took one of her baby mice to the department head, declaring, here is the material to determine whether or not cancer is inherited. I like to think that maybe he was sipping his morning coffee at the moment that Maud presented him with this naked, squirming baby mouse. In any case, the department head was not impressed, telling her, That question was settled long ago. Cancer is not inherited mansplaining at its finest. But Maud wouldn't be dismissed so easily. So she moved on to the head of the pathology department, Dr Ludwig Hechtern, and carefully explained her proposed study to him. Perhaps this was more convincing than an unexpected meeting with a baby mouse, and he listened patiently. Hechtern gave her permission to pursue her research and promised to apply for funding from the university. In the meantime, Maud worked around the clock caring for her cancerous mice. Scrubbing cages, feeding them, compiling data and conducting autopsies. Cleanliness of the mouse cages was a top priority because an infectious disease could quickly wipe out all her work. 
As her mice multiplied, so did her workload. She kept on working for months, wondering if any funding would ever come through. Later, when she was asked about this period of her life, she described herself as hanging on by her teeth. As to what might have kept her going, we can look to one of her poems, where she talks about her compulsion to understand the workings of nature, saying, I pace the world because I am storm-driven by this compelling of creation. Then, in 1911, she got the break she'd been hoping for a staff position at the newly formed Sprague Memorial Institute at the university. Along with the new job, Maud got a real laboratory and a raise that meant she could finally work in relative comfort. But there still wasn't enough money for an assistant, so she continued to care for her mice single-handedly. Maud devoted herself to the animals, even taking them with her on a cross-country journey when she travelled to visit her mother's sickbed. Slowly but surely, people became interested in what this cancer mouse lady was doing with all the squeaking creatures in her laboratory. One day, Maud had a visitor, a woman named Miss Harriet Holmes. Holmes was a trained pathologist of independent means who listened intently as Maud explained her experiments. She was amazed that Maud had kept the mice all by herself and offered to fill the position of laboratory assistant. Maud explained that there was no money for such a job and she wouldn't be able to pay her. But Holmes replied that she had her own money and she wanted to be useful, so she would volunteer to work for free. Together, they soldiered on with the breeding programme. After years of research and thousands of delicate mouse autopsies, Maud wrote her first report detailing the life history of a litter of six mice, three males and three females. Two of the males died of breast cancer and a third male was cancer-free. One female died from lung cancer, one was alive but had breast tumours and the third female was also cancer-free. In total, four of the six mice in the litter had developed cancer. Maud used this family to support her suggestion that cancer had hereditary factors. What's more, she excluded the idea that an infection was causing the disease by mating non-cancerous mice in the soiled cages of the cancer-affected mouse family. The offspring were cancer-free. On May 5th, 1913, she presented her results at a meeting of the American Society for Cancer Research. Whether they believed that cancer was inherited or not, and many refused to accept Maud's conclusions because they didn't think her work in mice was applicable to humans, the scientists in the audience were all impressed by the scale of her project. Maud accepted professional challenges and the criticism of her research and continued working to provide more evidence for the inheritability of cancer. Other researchers were also investigating the causes of the disease, with several scientists showing that they could induce cancer in animals with various types of irritation. Parasites in rats and tar painted on the ears of rabbits both successfully produced tumours. Maud's opponents quickly leapt on the work. If cancer was inherited, how could worms or tar cause the disease? Maud stressed what she'd been arguing all along, that cancers only appeared in susceptible individuals and inheritance was a factor, but she didn't believe that it was the only one. A 
As she continued her work, Maud fought off repeated attempts to discredit her, and the attacks got increasingly personal. One researcher who opposed her views even supposedly told a group of physicians from the Columbus Academy of Medicine that Maud had refused to show her data when requested, breaking down and crying at the request. It was a charge that infuriated her, leading to a storm of angry letters between all the parties involved. Despite the onslaught, Maud soldiered on with her research. Gradually, the reputation of her work grew, although it did remain controversial. In a poem, she reflected on her feelings about her work. The robin does not wait to ask if you like his song. He sings because he must. Maud's work continued to yield results. In line with Mendel's first law of heredity, Maud found that if a cancerous mouse mated with a cancer-free mouse, the offspring would be cancer-free but the disease would reappear in the next generation of animals. She concluded that cancer resistance was a dominant trait and that cancer susceptibility was recessive. She suspected that the recessive cancer susceptibility was responsible for the disease, suddenly appearing in families that had previously been cancer-free. In her laboratory, Maud could introduce or eradicate cancer from families of mice by selective breeding. She was convinced that choosing the right mate was key to avoiding the disease, not only in mice, but in people too. And here's where things get more than a little bit dark, because right around that time, the hot topic in genetics was, you guessed it, eugenics. Maud was fond of suggesting eliminating cancer from human populations by selective breeding, once saying, If we had records for human beings comparable to those for mice, we could stamp out cancer in a generation. At present, we take no account at all of the laws of heredity in the making of human young. Do not worry about romance. Romance will take care of itself. But knowledge can be applied even to romance. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Maud never married or had any children. Instead, she dedicated her whole life to her research, continuing to analyse her data even after her retirement in 1945. Over the course of her 37-year research career, she raised and tracked around 150,000 mice. Her work earned her a gold medal from the American Medical Society in 1914 and from the American Radiological Association in 1922. She was also awarded the Ricketts Prize from the University of Chicago in 1915 and an honorary doctorate from Brown University in 1937. She was even nominated for a Nobel Prize in 1923, although she didn't win. Maybe she was too controversial for that one. Moore died in 1954, leaving behind a massive volume of work. We now know that the hereditary aspects of cancer are much more complicated than she suggested. Still, her work was vital in establishing heredity as an essential aspect of cancer research. Today, people with a strong family history of the disease can receive genetic testing, with increased monitoring and treatments available for those carrying gene variations that increase cancer susceptibility. As for Maud and her mice, although they are now largely forgotten, I don't believe that she would mind, because the legacy of her devotion to research lives on. In her own poetic words, This is the work that I was set to do. And could, it seem, 
for a transcendent dream, I could forsake to see it finish through. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. If you've got a moment, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It keeps the algorithm happy and it helps more people discover the show. Thank you. The year is 1895 in the bustling Midwestern University town of Ann Arbor in Michigan, and an ambitious and brash young doctor named Aldred Warthen is about to have a life-changing encounter with a young seamstress named Pauline Gross. Warthen is in a buoyant mood. He's just been made an instructor in pathology at the University of Michigan, and he's taking the long way home through the city's industrious German quarter when he meets Pauline. They get chatting, and in the course of their conversation, she says, I'm healthy now, but I fully expect to die an early death. It's a sentence that will set the two of them off on a 25-year-long scientific crusade. Pauline's grim prediction wasn't mere pessimism. Her grandmother and grandfather had come to the US from Germany in the 1830s and produced a family with a dismal history of stomach, bowel and womb cancers stretching down the generations. In Pauline's mind, her fate was sealed. Her story piqued Warthin's curiosity. I like to think he was moved by pure human emotion, but he may also have seen the opportunity for a research project through which to advance his career. Either way, together they set about tracing as far as they could go up and down Pauline's family tree, gathering as many details as possible about each member, their ages when they first developed cancer, and the types of tumours afflicting them, and when they finally succumbed to the disease. It was an impressive piece of scientific detective work, which took a huge amount of time and dedication on Pauline's part not to mention overcoming the scepticism of her family, who were perhaps understandably more than a little suspicious of the medical profession, given that so many seemed to end up dying after their well-meaning but ultimately futile interventions. As might be expected, when a young, single woman starts spending a lot of time with a young, single man, it's often for less lofty reasons than scientific research. Indeed, there was plenty of speculation among Pauline's relatives that the young professor might make a good match. Notions that were clearly put to rest when Warthin married a no-nonsense doctor from Chicago named Catherine Angel. In fact, Pauline had no desire to marry at all, at least in part due to the weight of her genetic legacy. Why look for love when you know your life will be cut short, was her thinking. Warthin backed her up, somewhat cruelly likening her family history to inferior animal breeding stock, a metaphor that Pauline, as a farmer's daughter, was quick to grasp. This way of thinking wasn't unusual at the time, thanks to the flourishing eugenics movement in Europe and in the US. Charles Darwin's problematic cousin Francis Galton wrote in 1904 that All creatures would agree that it was better to be healthy than sick, vigorous than weak, 
well-fitted than ill-fitted for their part in life, in short, that it was better to be good rather than bad specimens of their kind, whatever that kind might be. So with men. Similarly, Warthin described Pauline's family as an example of Progressive degenerative inheritance, the running out of a family line through the gradual development of an inferior stock. He wasn't alone in his thinking. The American Breeders Association was just one of the many eugenics-based groups that sprang up in the US in the early 20th century, emphasising the importance of superior blood through activities such as fitter family and scientific baby competitions, and collecting family pedigrees just like Pauline had, but to be used for much more sinister ends. A report from the Carnegie Institute suggested euthanasia as just one of a number of methods for removing these genetic defectives from the population. We should not forget that many geneticists of the past embraced eugenic ideas, including Warthin himself, who's quoted as saying in a 1922 lecture, Today it is recognised that all men are not born equal. We are not equal so far as the value of our bodily cells is concerned. I believe the technical term is, yikes! There is a reckoning that we need to do as a field to address how science has been used in the past to discriminate against those who are different, rather than to improve life for all. And, as current events prove, that work is still necessary, and it must continue today. In 1913, Worthen published the first paper about Family G, as it became known, in the Archives of Internal Medicine, titled Heredity with Reference to Carcinoma, proving through his studies of Pauline Gross's family what Maud Sly was trying to show with all her mice. He concludes, A marked susceptibility to carcinoma exists in the case of certain family generations and family groups. Although Pauline was pleased that her family's story was becoming more widely known, she was frustrated by some of the errors that Warthin had managed to introduce into the family tree along the way. Over the summer of 1919, she fastidiously amended and extended the original pedigree, correcting dates and missing descendants, marking the deaths and adding new members as they came into the family, whether through birth or through marriage. It had been 25 years since they first started working together, and she was proud to hand over her perfect paperwork to Warthin. Just a few days later, her role in the project started to draw to its inevitable close. Pauline was rushed to hospital, only to be diagnosed with advanced womb cancer. Surgery revealed that the cancer had started to spread inside her body. But while the cancer would probably have claimed her life in short order, blood poisoning as a result of the operation hastened her death at the age of just 46. By the time Pauline's prediction came true, she had provided Warthin with detailed medical records about nearly 150 relatives, revealing a clear pattern of cancer inheritance tracking back to her German settler grandfather. Warthin acknowledged her contribution in a later paper, saying, The writer also had an unusual opportunity of obtaining accurate information concerning various lines of descent in this family from an intelligent and cooperative member of the family. Despite this compelling evidence of hereditary cancer, Warthin struggled to gain acceptance of his work, just as Maud Sly had with her mice. 
This may have been because the message that cancer was hereditary and inevitable was viewed as depressing and doom-laden to the new-founded American Society for the Control of Cancer, now the American Cancer Society, who preferred to pin responsibility for cancer prevention and detection on the individual. It might have also had something to do with his enthusiasm for eugenics, which was becoming increasingly distasteful in most parts of polite society. Although Worthen's assistant, Carl Weller, tried to pick up the baton and carried on researching Family G following Worthen's death in 1931, the project fizzled out as it became clear that while there was definitely a clear pattern of inherited cancer in the family, he was no closer to finding out what was actually causing it. Pauline's meticulous efforts may have been lost forever, languishing in a closet in the pathology department after Weller's unexpected death in 1956, had it not been for the work of American doctor Henry Lynch and social worker Anne Crush, then working at Creighton University School of Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska in the 1960s. Together, they picked up where Pauline had left off, tracing more than 650 blood relatives of Family G, with 95 cancers between them, mostly bowel, womb and stomach as before, and publishing their findings in the paper Family G Revisited in 1971. Lynch originally referred to the condition affecting Family G as Cancer Family Syndrome, but when a second family was found with a legacy of bowel cancers similar to those affecting Pauline's family, but no womb or stomach cancers, people started to refer to Lynch 1 and Lynch 2 syndromes. By the 1980s, Lynch himself was talking about hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or HNPCC, to describe the bowel cancers that characterised the disease. By the early 1990s, Lynch and his colleagues, including legendary cancer geneticist Bert Vogelstein at Johns Hopkins University, finally achieved what Worthen had only dreamed of, pinning down the genetic cause of Family G's misery. Vogelstein and his team had already discovered that faults in so-called mismatch repair genes were common in families affected by HNPCC. Mismatch repair is important for fixing errors in DNA where the usual correct pairing of the two strands of the double helix has gone awry. Failure to fix these molecular typos causes a characteristic pattern of DNA damage that gets perpetuated when cells copy their DNA, leading to genetic mistakes that cause them to multiply out of control and head down the road to cancer. After gathering samples from family members far and wide, the researchers discovered that members of family G affected by cancer all have an inherited fault in a gene known as MSH2, which plays a crucial role in the molecular toolkit that fixes these DNA mismatches. Once it was clear that there are several forms of hereditary cancer that were caused by various inherited faults in mismatch repair genes, they all started to come under the banner of Lynch syndrome. There are many cases in the scientific literature that start with a curious doctor or researcher hearing a patient's story and setting off on a journey towards finding a gene or a cure, maybe even ending up with a disease named after them along the way. But it's important we don't overlook the often nameless people and families whose real lived experiences form the basis for this work. 
Writer Amy McKay, whose great-great-aunt was Pauline Gross, has brought her long-dead relative back to life in her wonderful memoir, Daughter of Family G. She writes, My Pauline is not a nameless seamstress who confessed her woes to a doctor and then vanished into thin air. She was an outspoken and courageous woman who came from a family who loved her. She was intuitive, yes, but also an astute observer of human nature and a stickler for detail. In many ways, for what was to unfold, Warthin needed Pauline far more than she needed him. Family G is the longest and most detailed cancer genealogy that has ever been studied, going all the way back to Pauline and her encounter with Warthin in 1865. As Henry Lynch is quoted as saying, There is probably no other instance in which one family has contributed so much understanding of an important genetic disease such as this. Today, members of the family and others around the world affected by Lynch syndrome are able to get genetically tested to see if they've inherited a rogue version of one of the mismatch repair genes. They can then have regular screening to spot tumours at an early stage when they're much more likely to be treated successfully. However, although current research suggests that around one in every 279 people has Lynch syndrome, only around 5% of those know that they are positive for one of the underlying genetic variations. Clearly, much more could be done to make people aware of the condition and of testing so they can make informed decisions about their health. There are other options on the table for these previvors, people who know that they carry a harmful version of a cancer gene but haven't yet developed the disease, including prophylactic surgery to remove tissues and organs that are highly likely to develop tumours. Some studies have pointed towards the potential for anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin to reduce the risk of bowel cancer in people with Lynch syndrome, while other researchers are working on preventative vaccines. A century after Pauline Gross's death, her commitment to researching her family is helping to save their lives. And that is a remarkable legacy indeed. Thanks to Jenny Roan, also a scientist and a writer, for the voice of Maud Sly. If you want to hear more about Pauline and Family G and the impact that their genetic legacy has had on the family down the generations, I highly recommend the book Daughter of Family G, a memoir by Amy McKay, which I've drawn on heavily for this episode. Amy weaves together the strands of family history and science, together with her own personal story, to create a really compelling and emotional tale. If you'd like to know more about the story of Maud Sly, then see if you can pick up a second-hand copy of The Cancer Lady, Maud Sly and Her Heredity Studies by J.J. McCoy. But as a warning, it was written in 1977 and is pretty much exactly what you imagine a 40-year-old biography of a determined and exceptional woman written by a man might be like. And if you want to line up some reading for the summer, you can pre-order my new book, Rebel Cell, from rebelcellbook.com. There are links to find all of these on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be turning our gaze on the genetics of eye disease and the prospects of using gene therapy to restore sight.
For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. That's run by the lovely Tabitha, so pop over there and say hi. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it helps more people to discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional scripting and research by Emily Nordvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and the audio production was by the very tolerant Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.